I was looking at this talk again this morning and I, I thought, mother of God, it's all over the place. There's bits. I, what I tried to do is I, tried, I, 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 may, I came upon this idea a little while back that I would start for myself to put things together because my head is not the most organized head in the world, as my wife often tells me. So I would try to put a lot of the pieces of the jigsaw that I've been working on, or the jigsaws I've been working on for the last 20 years, and see how they might fit together. I don't think I've succeeded, but I've had a bit of a, a lash at it. And there's something beginning to emerge, I think. So what we're going to see today is the beginning I think of a process rather than the end of a process. So I had as many questions at the end of preparing this as I had at the beginning, and I'm sure you're going to have lots too. So feel free to ask questions anytime. If I can't answer them, I can't answer them. So be it. So I don't think some of them can be answered. Not yet, anyway. But at some point, we find an answer. So I was going to change the name to 42. <laughs> I thought that would be a really good thing to do. And I decided that if I do another version of this anywhere, that is what I'm going to call it. I'll be, I'll be brave. I didn't have the courage to do it. <clears throat> I think people would have been a bit too shocked. For anybody who doesn't know what 42 is, it's the answer to the world, the universe, and everything. So this talk is about the world, the universe, and everything, about standards and where they fit, where I think they fit, and where assessment fits, and where they all can maybe should work together. <coughs> Let's hope this works. Excellent. <coughs> so, it's, it would be against my non-religion, as I like to tell people, to start a talk on assessment without at least mentioning validity. Because that's where it all begins. If you don't start with validity, if you don't know what it is, you don't know where to go next. So nothing else would make sense. So you have to know what I think about validity and where I stand on it. If you don't, nothing else is going to work. We'll move on then to talk about standards a little bit, about the various meanings of standards. That was one of the great things. The, the idea for this talk came to me about a year and a half ago when I was at a conference in Malaysia. and I was standing up there rattling on about standards when I could see this gentleman, who turned out to be an Australian gentleman, who was getting very, very excited. And eventually he snapped and he put his hand up and said, that's not what standards are. <laughs> and he started to tell me what standards are. And I, and I said, no, this is what So after a few minutes of this, everybody else in the audience completely bemused, we realized we were actually talking about the same thing, but standards. But we were not talking about the same content because he was on one planet and I was on another. And I began to realize that standards aren't standards at all. There's no standard standard. There are standards. And there are with all kinds of meanings. So we need to have a little idea of what the different meanings of standards might be. I've also been talking for too many years about learning systems. Because a lot of times when I've done work in the past, I've been called into some place by a ministry or by somebody or other and asked to try to fix a system, a, an assessment setup in a country, for example. And when you go in to try to fix it, you realize it's unfixable because it's not connected to anything. Because there's too many places where you get this lunatic idea that if you have an assessment, it can have nothing to do with the content of what you're doing in the classroom. Absolute lunacy. I wrote a paper, just came out a few months back in, what was it? Modern Language Journal, I think. Is that it? I'm very useless at these things. I can remember what it looks like. Anyway, it was a special issue. It was about English for specific purposes, and I was going to do the testing side. And in it, I put forward one of my sort of throwaway ideas, as I like to do at the end, just to give, put something into the pot to start it around. I put this idea of what I've called an integrated learning system, which I'll talk a little bit about today. I was politely asked by the editor to take it out, because it would be too controversial for an American audience. <laughs> and when you see it, you'll think, it's blindingly obvious. This isn't something that's beamed in from outer space. It's blindingly obvious what it is. And any decent system does it already anyway. But 
it had to come out. I was offered another forum to deliver in it. But we'll talk a little bit about that too because that's part of the, the bigger picture, I think, from here. And then we'll start thinking about the beginnings of building a model of how it all might work together. I don't think we've done, I've done that terribly brilliantly, but we'll have a look at it anyway and see how it works. One of the key issues, I think, is, is understanding this notion of reporting because often in the whole assessment system, people are quite happy to accept a system without question. You know, what did you get in your test? I got an A. What does A mean? I got 60. What 60? Is 60 good? Why is it good? Who says it's good? It's good for who? Nobody ever asks those questions. So we do need to think about how we report a test and what does the reporting mean. And I'll give an, a one or two examples of some of the bad things we do very regularly in testing, language testing particularly. And we'll have a look at standards within systems or learning systems and then some conclusions. And by the time I get through all that, it'll be easily six o'clock because you'll never shut me up once I get going. That's my normal tactic. Once I start, it's like Magnus Magnus and I've started, so I'll finish, so I'll be off. You can stop me if you have a question, but you'll be lucky to get it in. I, I tell you, I'm not the most polite speaker that ever existed. Christian Brothers, for too many years, beat all the politeness out of me. So the bottom line for any serious assessment is validity. The current approach to validity which works right across most tests that I'm aware of is very simple. People create the test, they design it, they specify it, they operationalize it, and then they evaluate it. And as part of that process, they perform what they call a validation. Well, over a very nice pint in a very nice country pub some years ago, my friend Cyril Weir and myself decided we'd rechristen this approach to validity. And we christened it in this way. We think about a lollipop. This lollipop is not a lollipop, it's a test. And the question is, is the test valid? <laughs> and we call the approach the suck and see approach <laughs> to validation. Almost every test that's out there, that's how it's done. That's what validation means to people. Which is probably why most of the tests that are out there are not terribly great. Because people start thinking about what am I testing when it's too late. You know, if I'm a major corporation and I spend, and I know of one corporation who spent $25 million developing their new test, they're not all that expensive, but it would, it's not unusual to spend Aptis cost us probably about 1.2 million to develop from, from zero to putting it on the market. It would be a little bit of a shame to find when you finished it that you did a validation exercise and it wasn't really doing what you thought it was doing. So what happens is they do validation exercises and just ignore them. And if you look at TOEFL, TOEFL published a book very happily published a book in about 1972, which looked at all of the research that had happened in the eight or ten years since TOEFL, the idea of TOEFL started. And of all the, the research studies that were reported, I was particularly interested in, in, in research into the candidate. The, what characteristics of the candidate might impact on the performance of the test. And they basically found that every one of them did all of the characteristics had some impact on the test. But did they change the test? No. It took them another 30 years to change the test. And they didn't take the candidates into account then either. And they still went to the, back to the old way of suck and see approach of trying to figure out what is my test testing. And they're probably quite good compared to some of the others that are out there. I would say they're research at least is at a high level. Many of the exams that we deal with every day in the UK are never properly validated. 
and any of you who are entering into the world of education will learn that most education exams are not properly validated. This thing is a life of its own. It's like myself. My own view on validity is reasonably well known, I think. Have I gone on one? No, I'm, that's what I thought I was supposed to. I'm going to put that down. I'll come back to it when I need it. This is an idea that first it it's came to myself and Cyril Weir about 12 years ago. We were on our way to a conference and we decided that as we were traveling together, we would grab a piece of paper and we would start sketching out what we thought validity meant because I had stupidly maybe stood up at the conference and said Messick who is a god in terms of validity Messick I just find impossible I can't understand it I don't know what value it is you know there's bits of it in there that nobody agrees what they mean I, the, the notion of consequential validity, there's no such thing as consequential validity. If you read Messick the way I read Messick, maybe that's my reading of it, he's not calling it even part of validity. He's talking about something completely different. Consequential validity is an interpretation. It's almost like a Bible, you know, you have a different Bible group interprets Messick's work in different <laughs> ways. And, and, Sadly, the one that's taken control of language testing, particularly in America, is this Bible-bashing idea that every single part of this supposed model that Messick put forward has got to be applied. But it's never been applied. There's, as we sit here, Messick is dead 18 years almost. Nobody's ever been able to apply his full model to a test. It's never happened because you can't do it. It's, it's impractical. It doesn't help you to develop a test. It doesn't help you to validate a test even. Even a suck and see approach it doesn't work in because there's far too much involved in it. And that's one thing. There's also bits in it that you, nobody fully understands what they mean. So what we wanted was something practical because we were involved at the time in doing a lot of practical research work and development work for various governments. And we said, we want something that we can actually sit down and use and explain to people. The starting point was a test taker, because I was working on ideas around defining what are the various characteristics of the test taker and how might they have an impact on performance in a test. I was thinking mostly in terms of testing, speaking, or writing. Cyril was mostly interested in the test system, looking at the performance parameters and the linguistic parameters of the tasks in a test. I was particularly interested then in the scoring system, how that might relate to the others and how it should relate to the others. The original part had extra bits hanging out of it, like Cyril insisted on putting consequential validity, which is why I wouldn't have anything to do with his book in 2005, because we couldn't agree, because it just didn't fit, and neither did the way he considered um, criterion-related validity. Now we think about it completely differently. Essentially, everything is in one simpler, simplified model. So you start with the test taker. What you're testing is in there, in that person's head somewhere. So your model of language is in there. If you don't have a model of language, you can't start testing language. It's impossible. But it's not even as simple as that. You can't just open a book and say, I'm going to take this model and use it. Because what we've discovered over the years, and it should have been blindingly obvious to us when we started, was that when I take a model of language, if I use a, a model of language for adults in Africa, I should not be using the same model of language for children in India. Well, the model that supports it, yes, fine, I understand that, that's not a problem. But our application, our operationalization of the model has got to change because we're dealing with different people and we have to reflect the people we're dealing with. Otherwise, the test isn't going to work because we're likely to be looking for something that may not exist. 
or we may be looking in the wrong place for the, for the right thing. So we need to take the test taker into account from the beginning. We can't test anything unless we know who we're testing. Otherwise, our test is unlikely to work in the way we think it's going to work. And then, of course, we need a test system that reflects the content of what we think we're testing. So the test tasks that we devise must reflect the aspects of language that we're trying to assess. That's blindingly obvious, I would have thought. The scoring system should then have a theoretical fit, a clear theoretical fit to what we're trying to test and to the people we're trying to test. So you get a triangle. If you get all of that working together, your system is going to work, or it has a good chance of working. If it doesn't, your system doesn't really have any chance of working. And the problems that we find in a lot of tests is people will spend some time trying to figure out what we're trying to test. They will even then spend a fair bit of time identifying the kind of tasks and questions that we need in the test, and then give up the ghost and take on somebody else's rating scale, for example, if it's a test of writing, and adapt it, and not put the same energy into creating a scale that fits philosophically, theoretically, with the aspect of language that we're trying to assess. So the whole thing must work. And we, the beauty of doing something like this is, when we came up with this first, we were thinking of validating tests. Within a few years, we realized that these are way more important than just test validation. Because what you've got to do is when you're creating a test, you have to think about validation from day one. And how can you do that? You do it by linking this, not just to the validation activities that you're going to work on, but to the specification of your test. So when we create specifications for exams now for the last nine years, we use this as our framework. So the, specific, the exam is always specified using the validation framework. Now that has the added advantage that when you get to the end, you don't really have to start sucking and seeing because you've been thinking about every parameter of validity from day one. So you don't, you're not starting afresh. You've got all the evidence. So simply by documenting what you've done and how you've done it and why you've done it, you are beginning the process of building your validation argument. It is not rocket science. It, it works. It's a really practical, theoretically sound, and practically sound way of dealing with creating test specifications. As far as I know, nobody else uses a validation framework to drive test specifications, and I think it's crazy. It's the most obvious thing to do, to link the two together. And that's another interesting thing about Aptis, by the way. We don't have paper specifications because we decided that people look at a piece of paper and they say, this paper is written. This paper can't change. So, the paper never changes, so the test becomes moribund, dead, dies in the water very quickly. So what we've done is we've created a wiki, where the wiki is interactive. Only one person is the editor, of course, and that's the chief examiner, but everybody else who's involved in item writing, for example, can put items that they're working on into a sand pit and people can comment on it. They can also put in comments or observations that they've made about the specifications themselves. And we get it just today. I had a comment from one of the item writers who was able to tell me that the specification and the recommendation for words per minute for speakers don't work. Because if a person speaks normally at this rate, the word le limit is too long. So the actual, there's a, there's a, comp there's a problem there. Nobody ever thought of it until now, but he's right. So now we're fixing it which is something that could not happen or would not happen with a piece of paper. It just doesn't work like that. So we use a wiki. So that's another interesting little thing. The other thing that that does is that one of the big problems you have when you're using a real test is that you write a specification, you write item writer guidelines, and they don't always reflect each other. And the problem is that if they don't reflect each other at the beginning, they're never going to because they're always going to drift apart anyway because different people are working on them. So what we've done is we've put them together so they can't drift apart because there's only one document. 
which is another interesting idea, I think. Where am I? I'm a bit slow. Right. Taking what I've just been talking about, I'm just going to walk really quickly through this, because this is what happens, I think, in a test. So we start with a claim. What are we going to say about these people? We come up with an ability model that reflects what we're going to say about the person. Based on the ability model, then we devise a rating scale and tasks. They all have to be done together. The ability model drives the two. Once we've got that, we ask a candidate to perform on the test. This is for a productive language test. This would, it would be slightly different for listening and reading. We then ask a rater to look at the performance. The rater will look at the performance. We'll also look at the rating scale. But we also know that the rater is going to be affected by both the task and the candidate. Even if it's a voice, accent, if it's a picture, we know that visuals can have a, a stronger impact. We know that the rater is going to consider a task, if, if a rater, I think it's Lumley and McNamara back in the, or McNamara and Lumley, there's one of them is 95 and the other's 97, I can never remember in my life which one is which. But they did some research and they found that if the examiner felt that the task was easy, they're harsher. If they feel the task is, is, is harder, they're more lenient. It's kind of a relatively small scale study, but pretty blindingly obvious as well when you think about it. But the rater is being, a, affected by all of these things. So we have to try through training to train them out of these things. Now in language testing, we're terrible at this. If you're a, a counselor or a doctor or anybody who's engaged with people all the time, you do something called behavioral observation training, where you actually deal with your own stereotypes. And you deal with your, the, the fact that we all tend to make judgments about people really quickly. So, for example, if we meet at a party, how long do you think it's going, you're going to take to decide that you'd like to see me again or not? Tell me. <laughs> Five seconds? Maybe ten. That was a bloody good guess. It's three, but that's California. So maybe over here it's five. So. But that's it. So we are making decisions about people really quickly. So if you consider it's a speaking test and the table is set up here, how long is it going to take you to walk from the door, for example? So I'm looking at you for those number of seconds before you've said anything. I'm probably making decisions about you. If I haven't been properly trained, I'm probably making decisions that I shouldn't be making. I've we did an experiment 20 years ago almost, Don Porter and myself. We never published it, sadly. We did it at a couple of conferences where we, we showed photographs to trainee teachers and we asked them to guess the language level of the students. <laughs> Nobody said it was a problem. Nobody said it was a problem. They, every single person gave a grade to every single photo. It's like, wow, <laughs> what's happening here? But it does show that we are making these judgments really quickly in the process, and we have to train people out of it. The rater eventually gives a score with all of this taken into account, and the score is linked back to the claims. So it closes the circle. So in our theory, this is what's happening. Now you know what I, where I stand in terms of validation. That's what I think. If you have any questions, you can ask them later, I think, because I do think we probably should rattle on a bit. Standards as quality. I decided, the, what's the first thing? The most obvious thing that people think about, I had to start with the Tipperary Star. It's my hometown newspaper. Town, and not sorry, village. Sorry. What an insult. <laughs> Second biggest town in County Tipperary. So the Tipperary Star believes that the Mr. Tracy, a person, was a freedom fighter. And when it came to honoring his anniversary of his death, the local council just weren't up to it. So they just, the standards were seen to be dropping. In all of these cases that I could find, the standards are dropping. Because one thing we know about standards when we think about it in terms of the popular press, is standards fall. 
standards rarely go up. So standards as quality tend to fall. And these are from all kinds of places. The next idea of standards to standards is guidelines. And guidelines tend to reflect the learning and assessment philosophy of a government or an institution. And basically, it's a set of recommended practices. This is how it, and I'm talking about standards for assessment. These are the kind of things that governments or institutions tell us, this is what you must do. This is the way to do it. In terms of language testing, ILTA, ALTA, EALTA are the ones that are most commonly quoted because they have their guidelines for good practice or best practice or whatever they like to call them. And those are the, they, I would reckon, they reflect the philosophy of that particular organization. So they're all slightly different. If we move across the world to the United States, we find a very different set of guidelines. Often, guidelines have been driven more by psychometric characteristics of a test than by content. And I've always called it the Atlantic Divide in testing, because in terms of language testing that, and, and general education assessment, I'm sure, there has been that divide going back 100 years, more or less, ever since Thorndike came up with his scale of hand, for handwriting in 1908. And a compatriot of our own, Mr. Kelly, who came up with the multiple choice question and Kansas silent test of reading in 1914. Combination of those two set the Americans running in that direction, while over on this side of the world we were casually moving along in a completely different direction, focusing on the content of a test rather than on the psychometric qualities of a test. And I think that is very important because that for what's coming next, I think, what drives my thinking and most people, I think, in, on this side of the world, what our thinking, for us a test has got to reflect what we're trying to test in a person's head. And the numbers are only a piece of the jigsaw that help us to ensure that what we're doing is working. But it's not telling us what we're doing. And, and I've been, I studied engineering many moons ago, so numbers are something that I came to testing with. I got into testing because I could do numbers, whereas I think over the years, I've realized that numbers, they're good. Some of them are nice. Some of them are really sexy. Some of the stuff you see are fantastic. But a lot of it is just rubbish, really rubbish. They don't really tell us anything. And people put such faith in them. I never understand why. But then again, I come from the British philosophy of testing. So <laughs> I'm never going to understand why. And I think long may it stay that way. The next thing we think about are standards as levels. And in this way, we think about standards as defining the knowledge and skills that you need to know. And as you, as you learn anything, as you pass through a process of learning, what we try to do with these standards in terms of this definition is we try to say, right, at this point, these are the things you need to know. At this point, these are the things you need to know. At this point. So we can see a thread running through what we're trying, our definition of progression, if you like, in, in learning of anything. So they're progressive. And these are the steps that we feel that you must go through. Now, not everybody is going to agree with that either, because that works in a nice way, operational way, because we can, the more easily we can identify the stages of learning, the easier it's going to be for us to develop a curriculum, for example, and the easier it's going to be to develop exams and all kinds of assessments that fit in with the curriculum. But of course, the, the fundamental question is, is language learning linear to begin with? And if somebody was to ask me what I thought, I would tell you. <laughs> highly unlikely. So using this notion of language as levels, so that you, you, like a ladder almost, we, 
we come to the idea of identifying the minimally acceptable level of language in a particular domain that allows you to claim that you are at a particular level. So the minimum, minimally competent candidate, as people would now call them, though I prefer the less PC version. When that idea of the minimally competent candidate came out, which is a person who's just on the, on the border of passing, a little tiny bit less ability, you fail. You're just right on the border. But the psychometricians call that person the minimally acceptable person, which I think is fantastic. I used to have a t-shirt with a minimally acceptable person. On. I thought, you have to have a particular way of seeing people as things to, to come up with that idea. It is brilliant. It's my, my other favorite quote of the week was one stolen by some Burkina Faso writer the other day from Ben Gurion. He, he was talking about Burkina Faso got to the final of the uh, African Cup of Nations. And of course, everybody said they have no hope, they have no hope. And his quote from Ben Gurion was, anyone who doesn't believe in miracles is not a realist, which I thought was a fantastic quote. I was going to try to get that in here today, but I couldn't. So I thought I'd just say it anyway. <laughs> it was too good to waste. The final idea then of standards is a line in the sand. And that kind of links back to the first idea of where standards are always falling. And if we think of an institution or a set of institutions over a period of time, it's highly, highly unlikely that you always have the same level. You know, if you have a group of students, anybody who's ever been a teacher will say, well, the class last year, they were really good or they were a bit challenging. That was a nice one. They were a bit challenging last year. So the level is moving up and down. But the idea of the standard is that it should always stay the same. So what we should be trying to do in the standard is ensuring that we draw a line in the sand that doesn't move up and down every year and doesn't move up and down with the group. So that it's, it's not, it's criterion referenced, if you like. It's not norm referenced. And the problem with a lot of the standards that we have is that they're actually norm referenced. And we don't know what the standard is because there isn't a standard, let's face it. We, we, we call it a standard, but it's not a standard. Right, so those are talking about standards. I need a break now. Integrated learning system. This is what the Americans didn't like. Wait till you see it. Bloody <laughs> hell. That's it. That's all it is. The whole notion of an integrated learning system, as far as I'm concerned, is that if you have a learning system that you hope is going to work, the bits must actually talk to each other. They must fit together. If they don't, it probably isn't going to work. It might work. You might be completely lucky and pick something, uh, the right test or the right book, but it's a complete fluke if you don't actually think about it. Let's think about it in a little more detail. If we think about any curriculum, a curriculum is going to have different aspects to it. It'll be, some will be implicit and some will be explicit. So some aspects of language will be implicit in the system. Some will be more explicit. The delivery system relates to teaching, and that's teacher selection, teacher training, teacher monitoring, in-service training. Everything we do within a system is related to delivery. The materials we use, everything we use in our classroom should be tailored towards the same goal. The context, if I'm teaching, when I, I went to Japan 25 years ago and my first week in Japan I was asked to teach nurses communication and I thought that can't be too difficult. And then I went in and I found a class of 150 nurses <laughs> standing, sitting in these long rows in a room where there was no room anymore to swing a cat. So they were in Nobody was even standing up. You had to leave by file. So what kind of communication were we able to do? It was, it was a nightmare. So it comes right down to small things, like ensuring that if you're, if you're introducing a change to your curriculum or a change the way a curriculum is delivered, do you have the physical resources to deliver it? And it's not just computers, but it's, it's classrooms. Do you have chairs? Do you have desks? Do you have 
furniture that can be moved to suit the requirements of the, the system. Because if you don't, all of the other stuff can look fantastic on paper, but it's not going to work if you're not going to give the teacher the opportunity to deliver it, physically deliver it. In terms of assessment, we're going to have formative and summative assessment as part of the system, but if we don't build it all in together at the beginning, it's not going to work. It's too late later. I'm having this, not a battle, because it's already been won, but within the British Council there's a big movement now to try to change the way the teaching of English is performed. So there's going to be a more unified approach. And there's a massive project going to be put in place to put that together. And when I suggested that well, this is the way we need to be thinking about the project, I, I had no objection to the curriculum idea. That's fine. Obviously, the curriculum has to be driven by the particular understanding of what language is. And it has to be flexible enough to be delivered in many different countries, 58 different countries or something. The delivery system has got to be well considered, make sure that we have the facilities to deliver the curriculum. And then people balked at the assessment. We'll do that later. And I think I went into barking mode at that stage. I'm barking mad half the time anyway, but I was really annoyed. And I think they understood. <laughs> we left the meeting deciding we'll do it now at the same time. So we're developing within the system, as we're doing the curriculum and deciding how the curriculum is going to happen in reality in the classrooms, we're actually at the same time identifying the aspects of the curriculum that we should be assessing and how we should be assessing it. Because we can't assess everything in the curriculum. It would be a nightmare. I, I was going to put it in here, but I, I decided I'd spare you. But I have this chart that I put together of all the opportunities for assessment that you might have around a course. And when you look at it, you think, is this madness or any something? If you test it as much as you could test, there's no more time left. You know, when I worked in Japan, I noticed that my, the students, I was, I was in an education faculty and we were training students to be elementary and high school teachers in the Japanese system. And one of the things that they had to do was every Friday was a testing day. So they tested every subject every Friday. Which is hilarious. You, you say to them, well, you've lost 20% you know, of your teaching time. Oh no. No, no, we teach five days. No, no, you test one day, that's 20% of the time. So you're just throwing away stuff. It's crazy. We do too much testing, if anything. But what we need to understand is some of the stuff we can test, some of it we shouldn't test, we shouldn't even think about it. Some of it we should be, we'll, we'll draw a sort of a, a line between a testing and assessment. We'll say testing is formal and assessment is like so, more formative and is less formal sit-down testing. It doesn't always work in that way, but we'll do it for tonight. It's blindingly obvious that what you need to do is figure out right from the beginning which is the stuff we need to sit down and test and which is the stuff we need to assess in less formal ways. And we need to be considering that right from the beginning of the system. If, it does, if you're not, it's not going to work. Because it's too late coming in when everything is in place. It's too late. We've tried it. We tried a big project in Turkey where we, we created what we call the testing curriculum for a curriculum that already existed. And we could never get it to work because there were too many things that we didn't have control of. So what we do now is we insist that we try to get in at the beginning of the system. When the system is changing, we get in to help the change and we build in the assessment into the system. Otherwise, I tend to walk away because it's not, it's not healthy to try to do it later. So. Where does it work? How does it work? The idea, I think, is that in order to get these three pieces of the learning system to work properly together, we need a standard. And we may need to be thinking about the standard from all of those different perspectives. It may not be a single standard 
that we're working on. We may be working on all of the different definitions at the same time. So we need to consider the standards from all of the different perspectives from the beginning of the process as well. So we're sort of front-loading it, if you like, but we do need... If we, if we have a standard, I think, we can then design a system where all of the pieces are more likely to work together. Because if they're not going to work together and they start to pull apart, then the system breaks down. And of course, we have different models of where we would put assessment into the system. If we think about a system where these are our levels and these are our standards and this is our exit point, well, what we tend to do, the traditional system, is you put a test, bang a test in every now and then in, into the system to ensure that we have some progression through the system. That's one of the ways. The other way, I should have done this faster, but I didn't. Look at the same system. We put an assessment system, which is more related to continuous assessment or um, portfolio assessment or formative assessment. So we don't have the big hit tests at the end of, of section. And the final one is mixed. Typically, it looks like that, where you have formative and ongoing assessment until you come to the big bang at the end. It doesn't really matter which way you do it, as long as you've thought about it. I don't think we can dictate and say, you must do it one way or you must do it the other. The biggest, biggest point is that most of the systems where you've got any of those models don't think about the relationship between the different tests. They may spend a lot of time and energy thinking about the different aspects of language that a person is learning, but they don't really think about the tests to such an extent that many of the tests that are out there, the commercial tests, that claim to be testing at different levels, when you actually look at the language that and look at the tasks, look at the approach to assessment of the different skills within the test, the, the levels are not moving in the way they're being, we're being told they are. It often is like that. Cyril Weir was involved with a whole bunch of books called Examining, Examining Reading, Examining Writing, Examining blah, blah, in, with Cambridge. And one of the things that they had the courage to do was to let Cyril loose at their tests. He took the validation framework and did a very thorough assessment of every one of the Cambridge exams in the main suite, their five exams, and found that it, it went essentially, I can never remember, is it PET or KET? KET, I think is the lowest one. It was KET, PET, FCE, CAE, CPE. It went like that. And even then within the tests, you had all kinds of variation. Why did it happen? It happened because the people who wrote the test specifications were working in groups, in silos. So the reading people would never speak to the listening people, not at all. And the listening people or the reading people would never speak to the speaking people because that was a completely different test, much more difficult thing to do. And the writing people then were their own little group in the corner because they didn't talk to anybody. The problem was there was no connection through the groups when they were creating specifications. Even when they were doing big revision projects, they would never talk to each other. So the reading people would talk to re the reading people for FCE revision, would talk to the reading people from CAE sometimes, but not very often. But they would never speak to people doing the other skills in another test. They may meet people doing the same different skills in their own level, but they would never meet them to talk to them about what they were putting into the test. It was progress. How far have you come? Oh, we're nearly finished. How far have you come? That's all they did. They didn't actually communicate with each other. So you get this uneven movement. And I've done so many reviews of university systems where you get you know, six levels and nobody talks to anybody and, and in some places teachers 
jobs and salaries are connected to pass rates. So you'll find a big spike at one level and then it'll drop down again. And you look at the language that's in the tests that they have and they're all over the place. There's no consistency. So what we've been trying to do, I've been trying to do for a long time now, is to come up with a system whereas in, we create a test specification. As I said, these are some of the aspects, the parameters that I talked about earlier in the, in the test. So what you do is when you create a test specification, you, you address every line of the, the validation model. That's fair enough. So what I've been trying to suggest to people that if you have a multiple level system, what you need to do is not create a specification, but create all of the specifications at the same time and you work together. You might have different groups working with, with each other, but you try to cross-fertilize so that you create all of the specifications in the same document so that you can then look across and see, is it consistent? Is the movement consistent? It doesn't always have to be up all the time. You know, you could have the same, you know, if we think about a, a linguistic parameter, or let's say a reading test, you're, you're, you want people to write, to read, and you, know, you, you might have some, you might use a vocabulary profile, or you might use um, Lexile, or one of these other counting thingies, machines. And you, you might, as part of your specification, you'll have a fairly strict limit on number of words and difficulty of vocabulary and maybe cohesive qualities or whatever you're using, if you're using co-metrics. You might say, well, you know, it can stay level for a few levels and then move up. That's okay. But it shouldn't be going down. You shouldn't be going down in terms of the complexity of the vocabulary and claiming that you're, getting a, you're becoming a better reader. That sounds a bit daft. But it, level is no big problem, but up is where you really need to be moving. So creating a system like this allows you to develop right across the system all at the same time. It takes a bit of head work, but that's okay. That's what people are there for. Reporting learning outcomes. Why is it important that we get this part of our system right? Well, if we start with the learner, as we claim we do, and nowadays we're beginning in assessment to get better, but not, not all assessment is very good at it. A lot of assessment books will tell us that the test taker is the most important element of the test, and then they just go on and ignore the test taker completely, because we all know that that's not what they think anyway. In fact, I was, when I was doing my own PhD work some years back, I read all of the books that had just come out in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, all these books came out on testing, and they all had bits on the test taker. So being an engineer, I made tables of every time they would mention uh, a characteristic, I'd, I'd make a table. So I made all these tables, and I realized that all of these books, and there was one by Cohen, J.D. Brown, Alice and Clapman, Wall, various other people, they had no variable in common. Not even obvious ones like age or gender. They had no variables in common. And I thought, that's crazy. So then it, but then it began to dawn on me that what, what they were doing was, they weren't actually talking about the test taker as, as, as a, a person that you really have to take into account when you're developing a test. They were talking about test takers that they had met with in their projects and that problems that they'd had to solve in their own experience. They hadn't really thought about it properly, I didn't feel. But if we do consider the test taker at the beginning, we have to interpret the model, the language model that we're trying to access through the test taker because it has to be appropriate for that group of people. The learning system also has to be appropriate for the learners, of course, otherwise that, that is not rocket science. Everybody knows that. But these two things are obviously linked. But if we go through a learning system and, and, and the assessment that's involved and we come out the other end by making claims about the person, 
those claims have got to be, we have to be able to link clearly back to the person. Because if we can't, the claims don't mean anything. Our system is useless. So, no matter how good all this looks in the end, if it doesn't fit, and if we can't demonstrate the link right back to the beginning, the link doesn't mean anything. That's one of my other pet theories. And one of the problems, I think, with a lot of modern education and modern education assessment is that we don't try hard enough to make sure that the claims we're making link back to the candidates. And there isn't a connection, and we break that connection. And for too many people, the claims are irrelevant. The education is irrelevant because the system isn't made for them. The system is, is made for their great, great, great grandparents, maybe. And it just doesn't work in many cases. Of course, in some cases, it still does. And here's a little example of what I mean by just one aspect of many, many ideas that are bouncing around. Language level. I hate the idea of a language level. It's absolute madness. What level do you think you are? Who, come on, we'll, we'll experiment, experiment, experiment. Anybody got it? I'm not going to talk to you guys because you always speak English. That's not fair. And you speak Chinese as well, I'm sure, and probably a couple of other things. Anybody else around here who, has, who reckons they have a pretty decent second language? Okay, what level are you? CEFR. A2, I guess. A2, A2. So, you've got four skills. Yeah. And are you the same in all skills? Of course not. So how can you be an A2 then? <laughs> That's the problem. It, it became blindingly obvious to me. I lived in, China, in Japan for a long time. And I, I, I was always working, so I, was never, I never had time to study Japanese properly. But I, I used to play football. And I had this sort of crazy life. I worked at the university. I went to faculty meetings. So we had this really formal Japanese, which was hilarious. Because I would say things to the guys in the football team. They didn't understand me. Because it was such a formal. Most of the boys in the football team were builders. And they just didn't have the formal language vocabulary that the guys at the university used. And I'm sure the guys at the university wouldn't have understood a lot of what the builders were saying either. So I could curse and swear extremely well, and I could call for the ball in various places extremely well in Japanese. I could also go to a faculty meeting and have some idea of what they were talking about. But if I went and met you downtown and tried to have a conversation with you about any normal topic, I was lost. Because my Japanese was just weird. So, because I had these two strange registers that were not even close to each other. The other problem was, the only thing I could ever learn to write reasonably well, though I was always told by the Japanese that I wrote like a Chinese, whatever that meant, I think I didn't have the right stroke order, but I could write my name and I could write my address. That was it. Never really got any further than that. Reading, I couldn't read a newspaper to save my life because it was just far too complicated. Never really learned to read. But I could listen. I could understand most, most of what I heard. I could, I could watch television. I wasn't too bad. So where was I? I was like B1 or B2 in some skills. I was A0 in others. But if you took my, if I did a test, I'd come out A2. Now the one thing I wasn't ever, ever was A2. I wasn't able to, because that was grossly underestimating my speaking and listening. And it wasn't even close to being, it was an outlandish claim that I was an A2 in either writing or reading. Because I wasn't, I wasn't even on the scale for either one of them. You know, I could recognize the name of my city when I'd see it on a Shinkansen, so I got off at the right stop <laughs> before they put English on, onto them. So that's the problem. Some of these will work, but others just don't. So if I get a flat, if I happen to be B2 at everything, now I can say I'm B2. I don't mind that. You, you can say that if you like. 
But the bottom one, C2A1, C2A1, is not completely impossible for that to happen. So, but if you do the sums, you're going to come out <coughs> right in the middle. It's just crazy. So really, there's no such thing as a level. And trying to claim that you're going to get people to at level is meaningless. If you insist on putting all the skills together, and this is one of the things, another innovation in Aptis, if a client wants to create an overall grade, we ask them what the weighting is. So they don't always like it, but they're beginning to learn. We don't say, you. the first option we say, please try to avoid this option, because that's the lazy option. But gradually, people are beginning to understand that it actually makes a lot more sense that we weight the test in a way that makes sense to the test. The 40-20-20-20 is spoken Irish in the curriculum in Irish schools system. They, they introduced this idea of 40% to get people, more people to speak the language. And I'm not sure it's working yet. It hasn't been in action for long enough. But what the idea is that if you want to do it, if you, you have to at least think about the relevance of the different elements of what you're, you're assessing. And I think that's probably true of any subject that you're going to test. That you shouldn't just blindly say they're all the same. There must be some way. And, and I'm sure there's a, quite a mountain of research to be done to figure out how do you do that in, in the best possible way. Because right now, I think we just guess. We talk to people, we try to, we get expert judgment, but that's only a sort of a glorified guessing in many cases, having been an expert myself quite a, a few times. I kind of make it up as you go along, but sound confident. Standards and system, is the CEFR enough? The question is, is the CEFR a standard? And in terms of language testing, the CEFR is seen as the standard, whereas I'd argue that it isn't a standard at all, because it's lacking far too much in detail. Anybody who successfully uses something like the CEFR takes it and adds something to it. So for example, a test that we were working on at Roehampton where we wanted to create an exam for incoming students, we, we created a corpus of first year texts from right across the curriculum. And then based on the corpus, we used various kinds of analysis to analyze the, the language of the texts to help us to understand what was the kind of language a person needed in, in reading, this is only in reading, for this particular domain. So we, we obviously we were starting point with something like the CEFR, but that wasn't enough on its own. We needed much more. And the idea of using something like the CEFR as a standard is just crazy, because there's not enough detail in it. So what happens is that we think we're talking the same language, but we're not. So my B2 is not your B2. Because I've had to come to a definition from my own domain, and your domain may be quite different. So there may be very different definitions. So there is a bit of a problem with, with the B2s. I saw a really interesting paper at a conference a few years ago by Piet van Avermaet from Belgium, talking about this whole idea of is one level in one place the same as another. But Piet makes a pretty mean mojito. And the title of the paper was, Is my mojito your mojito? <laughs> so you don't forget the title. You might forget what he said, but you don't forget the title. So linking assessment to standards, and how would we go about doing it? So well, we have to start with our model. We start, everything we do, we start with that. That's, that's where the whole world begins. That is 42. We would then critically review our test to make sure that the thing is actually worth looking at to begin with. We would then look to our specifications to see how the specifications reflect the standards. So we would use the combination of the two to understand where our test is in terms of a level. We would then do a formal standard setting to, make, to try to link 
the standards to the test. And we'd use various handcuffs or whatever, various ways we can go around it. We would then validate our test, taking all of the evidence that we've gathered from the beginning into place, and then we can ready to make a claim. And the claim relates to the standards, and it relates to the validity of the test, because they're all intertwined by now. And I think that's the message that's coming through. So my concluding thoughts, I've only run a little bit over. And there was one very long interruption over there. <laughs> the story so far, we've, we've, we've come across validity. I've battered that into you a little bit. And we've thought about the three aspects of validity. We've come across the standards, the, the quality guidelines for practice, levels, line in the sand and the learning system. So what we need to think about now is how are they all put together? And what are the key issues that are arising out of it? And it seemed to me when I was looking back on all of this that there were a certain number of key issues that were emerging. I think these are more likely to lead to questions than to answers at this point. I think we have a long, long way to go before we fully understand how they all connect together. But the, the first point is that the learner must drive the system. And I think that's key, because that actually lies behind all three of my stamps. It starts with the learner. If the learner isn't driving each one of those, nothing is going to be worthwhile. You're, it's unlikely ever to lead to something that benefits the learner. The system must recognize the importance of the integration of the elements. So the integration of the different elements, the curriculum, the delivery, and the assessment elements must, if they're not integrated, your system is going to be weak. And it might be critically weak. The underlying standards must be explicit and obviously detailed, and detailed enough to be usable. Otherwise, you're not going to get it anywhere at all. And any claims you have regarding the learner must be justified. And that relates back through the system. Let's think about them all very quickly. I won't spend too much time on them. The definition of the, on the language that we're trying to assess has got to be related to the population that we're assessing. We can't assume that one definition is going to work for everybody because we know it doesn't. So simply saying that we use Bachmann's model of communicative ability, for example, isn't enough. Because how do you use it? And why do you use it? And what aspects of, of it are you using? Because you're not going to do it all. And, and in what way does that link to the candidates? And why did you make those decisions? And on what basis did you make those decisions? That's a validity question that has never been asked, I don't think. That needs to be asked. The learning system itself has, needs to be built around the learner. And, and the weakness that we have with the, our own education system, right across most of Europe, I would say, is that the system was designed 150 years ago for a population that doesn't exist anymore that the world has changed, the people have changed, society has changed, but the system still plods on. And there's talk and there's some very interesting stuff going on around educational philosophy. I think that's really good and we should be looking at it on the language side as well. Because a change has got to happen at some point. I don't think it'll be as radical as some of the people who are shouting for it. But some, some change has got to happen. And it's happening already. You know, we're, we're looking at delivering tests now using um, iPads and tablets. Because in parts of Africa, they don't have computers. They don't have desktops. But they have iPads. They have, and in India, the government has just announced the new Akash tablet, which they're going to sell for $40, 40 pounds or $40, I can't remember. And the first run of those for university students is going to be 40, or 20 million. That's the first run over the next couple of years. And when they've done that, and they, uh, when they're convinced that that's working, they're going to move on to the secondary schools 
400 million they're going to produce. So countries like those are looking to new technologies to deliver learning or to augment learning. We have to, as assessment people, we have to not react. That'll be too late. We have to be up there ahead of the posse, which is what we're trying to do, because our next test coming out of the British Council is going to be really different, fascinatingly different. Assessment in the system. Assessment has got to be recognized finally as a core element of any learning system. I'm fed up talking to people about how awful most teacher training programs are because they don't include enough testing. Teachers, whether their educators like it or not, are going to be involved in assessment, formative and summative assessment from day one. But still, it's possible right across Europe to qualify as a teacher and never do a course or a meaningful course on assessment. For me, it's just lunacy. So one of the things that I've managed to get, I'm off to Barcelona in two days. We're starting a new project where we're developing an assessment literacy program for all of the British Council. And part of it is we're creating all of these materials and then identifying what level and what aspects of assessment every member of the council needs to know. Sometimes they, don't, they need to know almost nothing. Sometimes they need to know a huge amount. So we're, going, we're creating an assessment literacy program for the whole organization so that if we're going to be involved in creating tests, that I don't have to go to you and say, this is what a test is. You already know. Not, not, and not only do you already know, you know our approach. And if you're going out to sell a test somewhere, you don't just think, this is, a, this is like a car, I can sell this. You actually understand what it is, and how it looks the way it does, etc. It must be linked to the curriculum and the delivery process through the standards. Still not completely clear how that's going to happen, but it, it has to happen. And appropriate assessment has got to supply the information. That's where the benchmarks come from. It has to be an appropriate assessment. And it has to be appropriate to the learning system, the philosophy that drives the system, and to the learners, of course. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Assessment of young learners drives me mad. Totally inappropriate. Standards empirically based. Standards don't change. Standards don't go down. In that definition, the standard stays the same. Some other stuff might go down, but the standard should stay the same. And the standard should be reflected in the curriculum and everything else. So that means that we have to rethink how we discuss standards and what they might mean. And the claims. So progress within the system and out of the system has got to be explicitly linked to the standards. And that can't happen just at the end. It has to happen right through the system. The way we report the standards should then also be appropriate and meaningful. And we should make sure that the people who were telling you had a B know what a B means. It's, no good. it's not enough just to say that you get a, you're a B or a B1, whatever you want to call it. And that's it. I've reached the end of the night. But we'll have... <laughs>